Can you hear me now? Somebody give me a thumbs up. Give me some sort of indication that you can hear me. We can hear you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, my light was flashing here, so I wasn't sure. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Colin and Jose gave me a thumbs up too. Thank you. Uh, also, before we pray, um, somebody uh, put on the chat, Marie-Ève, uh, I believe, put a, a notice there saying she's having a hard time with closed captioning. I see the, that it's available on my screen. If anybody knows maybe why that's an issue, or Eric, if you could make sure that that's turned on for everybody who wants that, uh, or if anybody knows a way that they can help Marie-Ève, um, please take a minute and do that. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, um, you encourage us, you strengthen us, you, you invite us to stand firm um, in good order and, and to know you and trust you and build our lives upon you. So we come before you with openness, with humility, with um, joy, with a desire to, be, to hear from you. Um, so make us good, fertile soil uh, for your words, that your kingdom may continue to grow in us and bear fruit in the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I've, I've said it a couple of times, we're going through the book of Colossians, and I mentioned that there's, to me, there's this sort of threefold purpose of Colossians, that Paul is writing both to, um, to celebrate the faith of these young Christians, he's writing to warn them of potential dangers that they may face, and third, he's writing to ground and establish them firmly in the faith of Jesus Christ. And we sort of see all three of these components in um, Paul's own, own sort of mission statement that you hear in, in Colossians 1.28, verse 28 today, where he says, Him, Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, proclaiming, warning, and teaching. You can see how that fits into the, the threefold purpose of this letter. And in our passage today, uh, we start to get hints of what Paul is warning the Colossians about. When he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's Colossians 2.4. So everything he's said is somehow connected to this warning about not being deluded by plausible arguments. And we'll get into this in more detail next week, but there are various hypotheses about who Paul is warning the Colossian church about. Some think it was this sort of um, Jewish Christian uh, Gnostic sect in the area. Others think it was a Christianized mystery cult. Um, others think it was um, mystical Jewish asceticism was the issue at the time. Others think it was Hellenistic philosophy. Others still folk religion. So there's all sorts of different ideas about um, who might be trying to delude these young Christians. And as I said, we'll get into that next week. But I bring this up because the point to make here is that whomever it is that's trying to delude the Colossians, what they're essentially saying is that Jesus is not enough. That's the basic message that they're trying to get across. That Jesus is not enough. He's not sufficient for salvation. There's a deeper mystery or a greater knowledge or other practices that they need in order to be truly saved. And to that, Paul just keeps saying no. There is nothing else that is needed. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is the firstborn from the dead, that in him he is to be preeminent, supreme over all, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That through Jesus, God was reconciling all things, things in heaven and things on earth, to God through the blood of the cross. What else could be needed? How is that in any way insufficient for salvation? What more could possibly be added to that is the question that Paul wants to ask them. That's why, again, I said it last week, but this poem that we looked at last week in Colossians 1 is so central to this letter. But beyond that, Paul says the great mystery that is at the heart of the Christian faith, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, he says. The great mystery at the heart of the Christian faith, Paul says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just that salvation is found in him who is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all things were created by and through and for, the one who holds all things together and who is preeminent over all, the one who is the fullness of God in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not only is he sufficient for salvation, but that somehow this Savior, the Savior of the, of the entire cosmos, he dwells within you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you want to add to that is essentially what Paul is saying. It sounds silly when you put it that way, but I think we've all experienced this in different ways. We've all been tempted to add to our salvation or as if we need to, um, it's by our perfect moral um, workings in the world or by the things that we do or... Um, other systems of belief, whatever it is, sometimes we are tempted to add to the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us by grace through faith alone. But that's why throughout Colossians, Paul just keeps reminding these young believers of this new reality, which is Christ in them, the hope of glory. So in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, he says, For in Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. The fullness of God fills Jesus, dwells within Jesus, and Jesus fills you. He dwells within you. In Colossians 2.12, Paul says this mystery took place in and through your baptism. Or that it's your baptism that's a sign and symbol of this great mystery. He says you've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. The point is that you have both died with him and been resurrected in and through him by the powerful working of God. This is a new reality. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then you get this incredible verse in Colossians 3.3, 3, um, one of those verses that I think it's just one that all of us need to spend our time meditating on, where Paul says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the mystery at the heart of the Christian faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is where your salvation lies. You, your life being found in Jesus, for there is salvation.
Nothing else needs to be added to this. And mystery is actually the right word here. Mystery um, in the Christian tradition does not mean something that is unknowable. Mystery means something that is not fully comprehensible to our finite minds. So the incarnation is a good example of Christian mystery. We just came through the season of Advent and Christmas where we were contemplating the incarnation, and the incarnation is a good example of this. It's not that we don't understand the concept of the incarnation. We understand it. We understand that God took on flesh in order to bring about the salvation of all creation. This is a concept that we understand. But where mystery comes in is when we try to comprehend the fullness of what that means. What does it mean for the creator of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, to become part of his creation? What does it mean for God to need human beings to care for him and to keep him alive? What does it mean for God to become vulnerable and susceptible to death and disease? One author that I read over Christmas, I I think she expressed it well. She said this, it's nearly impossible to believe God shrinking down to the size of a zygote implanted in the soft lining of a woman's womb, God growing fingers and toes, God kicking and hiccuping in utero, God inching down the birth canal and entering this world covered in blood, God rooting and crying out in hunger, God resting contentedly in his mother's lap. It's all beyond our capacity for full comprehension. So too is our union with Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, that he dwells in us and we in him. That God and I are somehow one, that we are bound together, you and I, as the body of Christ. That my life and your life and our life together is hidden with Christ and God. This is a great mystery. But mystery, again, in the Christian tradition, has never been an end in itself. It's never about categorizing something as not fully comprehensible and then leaving it at that. Mystery has always been an invitation, a starting point, a point of entry into contemplation and meditation and encounter with the living God. And so even though we will never fully comprehend this great mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, there is still an implicit invitation in the statement to contemplate and to experience wonder. And in so doing, to encounter the living God. For mystery is not just a static description of a state of mind, but a dynamic reality in which we encounter the living God who is beyond full comprehension, yet reveals himself fully in Jesus. This beautiful paradox. And as we enter into this great mystery through contemplation and reflection and wonder, we are actually drawn more deeply into the life of the living God, the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory, as we encounter God in this great mystery and experience him as the very ground of our being. And so one of the questions for us to consider this week is how might you encounter that? through contemplation and wonder. How might that uh, contemplation and wonder shape your lives? Could it give you a greater sense of identity? 
I am Christ's, and he is mine. In him I live and move and have my being, as Paul said in Acts. That no matter what happens to me, if I lose my job, if people turn away from me, if any other identity markers fall away, I will never lose my truest identity, which is my being a beloved child of God, that I am in him and he is in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Does this mystery give us a deeper sense of, our, of security in the face of our own mortality? That no matter what happens in this life, whether I live or whether I die, Paul said, I am in Christ. To live is gain and to die is gain. Can this great mystery undergird our lives and give us that ultimate sense of security in the face of anything that we must endure? Can it help us know that we're never alone? Even as we're feeling isolated and not able to see one another in the ways that we'd like to, that not only am I in Christ, but we together are in Christ, sisters and brothers joined in him. We're truly never alone. What are some of the implications for you of Christ's indwelling presence in your life that you need to contemplate and consider this week? How can this great mystery encourage and strengthen your faith? Well, Paul does expound on one of the implications of this reality in our passage today. And that is that to live in Christ and he in us is to be both called and empowered to participate in his mission in the world. That's one of the things that this means. In Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's work in the world is an expression of God's indwelling presence in his life, that God strengthens him and empowers him for the work that he's called him to do. Not only that, in Colossians 1, uh, 24 and 25, we get this very strange sounding um, statement from Paul when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul is connecting his work as a minister and as an apostle to his sufferings and to filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. A very strange passage at first glance. But I think that the only way to truly understand these verses properly is to connect them to what Paul has been saying about the Christian's indwelling relationship with God, that God lives in us and he and we in him. He is in us and we are in him. There are lots of ways for us to think about uh, suffering. As we go through scripture, James talks about suffering producing steadfastness. Peter talks about suffering as a refining process of our faith. Paul talks about suffering keeping us humble or suffering preparing us for a future glory 
or that suffering creates empathy in us and the ability to comfort others as well. There are all sorts of different ways that we can think about suffering based upon scripture. Um, and we, we do wrong when we try to paint all suffering with the same brush. But there's another category of suffering that scripture speaks of uh, that I think this passage is an example of. And that is that some suffering is a consequence of the Christian life and the furtherance of the gospel. So when Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, there's two things that are important to notice here. First, that Paul is rejoicing in suffering. It's not just um, suffering per se. It's not just um, any type of suffering, meaning that not all suffering is worthy of our rejoicing in. Some suffering is just tragic, period. It doesn't mean that Jesus does not meet us in that suffering and that we cannot experience hope in the midst of even tragic suffering, but that not all suffering is worthy of being rejoiced in. The suffering that Paul is talking about here is suffering for the sake of the body. It's suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. So Paul can rejoice in his suffering because it is a sign and symbol that he's on the right track is the way that he takes it. When the darkness senses the light, the darkness wants to fight back. And so Paul's suffering for the gospel is considered worthy of rejoicing in because it's part of God's light dispelling the darkness, working against evil and wickedness in the world. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Some suffering is worthy of rejoicing in when it's suffering for the kingdom of God, suffering for righteousness sake and suffering on Jesus's account. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's worthy of it. And that's why Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the sake of his body that is the church. It's not just suffering per se. Paul is rejoicing in suffering that is for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the body of Christ. That's the first thing to notice here. The second thing to be mindful of here that I think is very important is that when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, He's not saying that the sufficiency of Christ's suffering on the cross is being called into question. He is simply connecting his own sufferings, so Paul's sufferings, with the ongoing work of God in the world. And so Christ's suffering on the cross was full and, and complete. It was the full and complete redemption of the world. But affliction will continue for the church, for the body of Christ, as she goes forth into the world proclaiming and embodying the good news of Jesus Christ, inviting all people everywhere to enter into the fully accomplished redemption through Jesus Christ. And this interaction is all about um, this indwelling nature of what it means for us to be in Christ and he to be in us. 
An example here would be um, of this not being about um, the, the insufficiency of Christ's suffering on the cross. An example would be, you know, a, a victory in war. That the news of which hasn't yet reached everyone. That victory would be fully accomplished. The war had been won, but the knowledge and outworking of that victory would need time to spread. And there still might be adversity uh, before the word fully gets out. Another example that I was thinking about this week would be um, the emancipation of slavery in the United States. That even after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, it still took years for that message to reach the South. And there was all sorts of adversity in that interim period and long after. But what Paul is saying is that as we move forward as the body of Christ, we will still face hardships, which is a participation in Jesus's affliction because he is in us and we are in him. But the victory has already been accomplished. It's complete and full. So we cannot understand Colossians 1.24 apart from the central verse of this passage, which I think is Colossians 1.27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so this concept of Christ's um, indwelling presence in our lives is not merely something that we are to contemplate, though I think we should. Because in so doing, I believe that we do encounter the living God as we come before him in prayer about this great mystery. But it's also something that we live out in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So the other question to ask yourself is, what does that look like in your life? What does it look like for you to participate in the mission of God? How are you doing that? How are you proclaiming in word and deed the glory of God and his goodness? Christ's victory on the cross. How are you encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ and working to knit them together in love, which is Paul's language in Colossians 2.2. Another way to think about it is, who are you suffering for? Who are you afflicted for? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom? Are you willing to forego some of your comforts for the sake of, his, of God and his mission in the world? And what does it look like for you right now, uh, even in the middle of COVID, in your neighborhood, in your work, in your context right now, what does it look like for you to participate in God's mission? I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Colossians 2.1. He translates it like this. He's got Paul saying, I want you to realize that I continue to work as hard as I know how for you, and also for the Christians over at Laodicea. Not many of you have met me face to face, but that doesn't make any difference. And here's what I want you to hear. He says, know that I'm on your side, right alongside you. You're not in this alone. So the question is, do your colleagues, do your neighbors, do your friends, do your family, do they know that you're on their side, that you're right alongside them, that they're not in this alone? Would they use these, those words to describe you? And if not, maybe that's where you need to start with participating in God's mission in the world. For those around you to know that you're with them, you're on their side, they're not in this alone. And please remember Paul's words 
in Colossians 1.29, which is a, another verse I think we should memorize, where he says, I toil. So I work, Paul says. I, I have my part to do, and I'm working hard at it. I want to participate in God's mission in the world. I have my part to play. I toil. He says, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Ultimately, our hope is not in our own ability to fulfill the, the mission of God. Thanks be to God. Our hope is in Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.